Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Father, thanks for this night, and thanks for being here and helping us to study your word, open our hearts to what you would have to teach us. Thank you so much for this uh, semester that we've had in these two wonderful books. And um, all of us who can come back next fall, I pray that uh, you just bring us back here and, and again, teach us from your word. But tonight, we just open our hearts to you. In Christ's name, amen. Second um, Corinthians 11, working our way down towards the end here. Now, one of the one of the things that you'll find as you start working, as you work through 11, at um, chapter 11 and the chapters around, I think you've probably seen that, is uh, how this all fits into Paul's defense of the gospel and also interwoven in between his defense of his ministry and what he does. It's this whole concept of the collection, the giving, and um, you know the financial support that the Corinthians are giving for his project and the accusations of the false teachers who are trying to somehow make it out that Paul was trying to take advantage of the Corinthian church. Now, we know this a lot when you look at the TV today and see the preachers on television and how they take advantage of people and cheat people. Um, this is a very, this is a very um, I guess, relevant passage to understand um, and work through. Um, verse 17, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. I think that's a very important statement there. Um, if you're going to glory or boast or, or take uh, any kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, any accolades, it should be in the Lord, what the Lord is doing, not what you're doing. One of the distressing things, I guess, you see a lot of ministries, it's how they try to compete with one another and make themselves out to be something that they're not. You also see this in the good old boy network on some of the television channels and some of the things. I remember, I think I told you this, I was going across the uh, San Bernardino Mountains. It was late at night, driving down to San Bernardino from up near Las Vegas. We, we didn't go in Las Vegas, we went around it. There's nothing in Las Vegas to look at. We went around it. And um, I couldn't get anything. Finally, I got this one radio station. They were, they were giving out some kind of religious award, ministry award. And they were going on for, I think it was about 15, 20 minutes on how great and wonderful this guy was. And he was such a, a benefit to the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God has benefited so much because of this man's faithfulness, ministry, and blah, 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 blah. And I was, you know, I was starting to get, I wonder who this guy is. I mean, you know, the way this guy sounds, it's like if this guy wasn't around, the kingdom of God would be set back 20 years. Finally, I found out it was Rex Humbard. About drove off the side of the mountain. Um, folks, Paul is saying, look, I don't want any credit. I don't want any accolades. I don't want any buildings or churches named after me. My ministry, if, if I'm going to boast in anything, it's going to be what the Lord has done, not what I've done. And remember, how did Paul come to the Corinthian church? When he came to them, what did he determine not to do? Yeah, he did not come in with great excellency of speech, with his oration, 
with whatever his program is. Why is that? He won the gospel and he wanted to make sure that if they responded, why were they responding? From the gospel. And see, now we have to, and quite honestly, you know, it's one of the great debates today. We have to walk a thin line on this, don't we? On one hand, we can't fall into the trap of thinking that it is our program or our programming that brings people to the Lord. Right? That's one of the big debates today. You know, you, you, you got all these seminars and all of these people telling you how to do ministry so as to attract the unbeliever and make it comfortable for them in your church and all this kind of stuff. Um, as though if you don't do that, somehow you're going to miss people who otherwise would believe. You've got to be very careful of that. Who's building the church? Christ is. And Paul is saying, when I came to the Corinthian church, I determined to do everything I could to get me out of the equation. My abilities, my intellect, my oratory. I want to get all that out of the picture so that if and when they responded or you responded, it would not be because I talked you into it. Because you were convinced by some great, wonderful speech. Folks, it's not the speech that brings people to the Lord. It's not your great, wonderful abilities or anything like that. It is the proclamation of the truth of the Word of God that the Spirit of God takes and applies to the heart of the person. That's where the change comes. And the problem is, when you program when you try to come up with a program to attract people and get them in the church, what do you wind up getting? A lot of flat sand. You may get a lot of people who seem to be Christians, but they're not really. And as long as the programming is there and as long as the lights and all of that's going on, they'll be there. But they don't stay. And Paul is saying... It's not the one who commends himself that is approved. It's the one whom the Lord commends. And I'm saying probably by extension, it's not that we commend each other. Who does God commend? We, we shouldn't be. And here's the whole point, too, folks. Don't go around comparing your ministry or your spirituality with somebody else's. Because that's totally irrelevant, right? That's like a couple of pieces of coal trying to brag on which one is less black than the other. They're both black. God is the only opinion that counts. He's the one we are going to give an account to someday. And instead of going around trying to jockey ourselves and our ministry so as to attract the biggest crowd, let's worry about being commended by the Lord. And that's what Paul said. And that's one of the accusations that the people had against him. The false teachers say, well, you know, look at that. Look at him. I mean, the guy is a total bozo. Why would you ever follow Paul? He can't even speak well. We got Mr. Silver-Tongued Speaker over here that can run rings around Paul. You ever go to a church service where you had a great time, you went out, somebody said, what did he preach on? And you couldn't for the life of you think about what it was. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've gone to some entertaining, and I've heard entertaining 
speakers. But when you're done, you don't know what they said. You certainly don't feel like the Spirit of God was there. You had a great time. I was listening to, I, was, I forget what context it was in. I, was, I think it was TV. I was listening to one of the boys from the Toronto Blessing Movement. You know, the Holy Laughter. He was a funny guy. He was. He was a real comedian. I mean, he had some pretty good jokes. Now, was he saying anything spiritually meaningful? Well, no. But he could say some jokes, get people laughing. And of course, if you're spiritual enough, you'll roll around the floor laughing uncontrollably. That's silliness, folks. Paul's saying, I'm not out to make myself, I'm not out to commend myself, I'm not out to pat myself on the back. I'm worried about what God's going to say about me. And then verse 11, chapter 11, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. Paul's saying, bear with me in a little folly, a little silliness. Now, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to defend his apostleship and why. He's not defending. Here's, here's, what, here's the big picture, big grand picture. Paul is saying, I'm not defending myself and my apostleship to make myself look good. That's not the point. It is because I am preaching to you the truth. You've got false teachers preaching to you error. And unless I deal with that, you're going to follow these silver-tongued false teachers into error. The issue is not me versus them. The issue is not my ego versus their ego. The issue is truth versus error. And Paul's saying, I'm being forced, in a sense, I'm being forced to defend my ministry. Because if I don't, you're going to follow a bunch of false teachers. It has nothing to do with an ego trip by Paul. Paul is saying, it's not, I'm not trying to commend myself. Because my commendation of myself is pretty irrelevant. It's what God thinks of me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The imagery here is Paul who says, I have betrothed you to one husband, Christ. And I want to make sure that I present to you a pure virgin to that husband. And this goes back to that culture. All right. In that culture, the greatest duty of the father is to protect the purity of his daughter so that when she's wed, she's a virgin. And if something happens, it is his responsibility to kill whoever. In fact, you go over to Islam countries right now. That's what you'll find. In an Islamic country, it is the duty of the father to ensure or protect the purity of his daughter. And if she is, is violated, it is his responsibility to kill whoever does that, to protect her honor. And Paul, I mean, Paul's not going that far here, but Paul is saying, look, I betrothed you to one husband, and I want to do everything I can to present you pure to that husband. Now, how can that purity be besmirched? Well, by false doctrine, right? I mean, throughout the Bible, adultery is seen as idolatry, right? In fact, that's the imagery. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was seen as an idolatrous woman who's going after false gods. Again and again, the imagery is brought up 
of 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 God who's who loves Israel and and wants to protect her and Israel is off whoring after other gods. The whole book of Hosea is given up to that. His whole life is a picture of that. And Paul is saying, I want to present you pure to God. And the, and the way I got to do that, that's why I'm so concerned about this. This is not some ego trip on my part. This is not some something that I have to defend myself because I don't want to look bad or I have some ego problem here. Paul is saying, I want to present you as a pure virgin. And to do that, I have to protect your purity. And I can't do that if my ministry has been toasted by these guys that come in and make me out to be a false teacher. And you go following after these guys. I'm going to fail. But I fear, lest somehow the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's a great verse to memorize. How did Eve lose the battle? She was deceived. She thought she was doing the right thing, when in fact she was doing the wrong thing. And the serpent beguiled her. The serpent took advantage of her. And Paul's saying, I'm afraid that just like the serpent took advantage of Eve, you're going to be taken advantage of by these false teachers, and they're going to corrupt you from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, now let, I want, let's think about that, simplicity that is in Christ. Folks, the gospel is not rocket science. Right? You don't have to be a Phi Beta Kappa to figure out the gospel. Look at yourself. Look around the room. Any any really smart people in here? <laughs> not many wise, not many noble, right? Folks, the gospel is not tough, but what do false teachers tend to do? They complicate it. They make it more difficult than it really is. You ever? I'll tell you something. You go. You want to do this? Go study Mormonism for a little bit. Not too long, but just a little bit, and see how. I'll tell you what. You. That's a real head trip trying to figure that out. It's extremely complicated. I mean, it, it is. It is complex beyond. Look, what Christ said. Unless you have faith like a little child. The gospel's not not tough. And Paul is saying, you guys are being snookered by these people because they're making the gospel out to be some complex thing. Say, well, you know, Paul, he's just, you know, let's show you the deep meaning. And I'll tell you what, I, I folks, there are heresies coming out the wazoo of people coming up with the deep meaning, the secret meaning of Scripture. You know, well, for 2,000 years, the church has had it wrong, and I figured it out. Finally. Look, that is that is arrogant. That is arrogant. One of them, I was just listening to a series of tapes on it. The New Perspective on Paul. I don't know if you know about what that is. Somebody came up with this thing called the New Perspective on Paul. Do a Google search on it, and you'll find a lot of stuff written on it. But basically, their thesis is we've got the whole justification thing all wrong. Paul's not at all talking about 
forensic justification or being right before God. He's talking about racial reconciliation. And we've just blown the whole thing for 2,000 years. Everybody's gotten it wrong. And you just throw the whole concept of forensic justification out the window. Substitutionary death, that's not really right. There's somebody who's come along and say, the idea of, you know what the substitutionary atonement means, right? Christ took your place. And somebody says, well, that's cosmic child abuse. So now God's a child abuser. How dare he abuse his son like that? Folks, look, don't get yourself schnookered. And Paul is saying here, you know, you guys can get yourselves. You follow these people, they, they will lead you astray. They will get you confused from the simplicity that is in Christ. It is the, the, the gospel is simple yet infinitely profound. It's so simple a child can understand it. It's so profound that you can study it the rest of your life and not scratch the surface of it. But it's not complex to where the only people that can understand it are people with high IQs. And see, that was the problem that the Corinthians were buying into, right? Because they were into this Greek philosophy kind of business, right? You ever, you ever look at some of the cults like Dianetics and Scientology and all that stuff? That is complex stuff. And people think Christian's crazy. you got to be really nuts to follow that stuff. Yeah, Tom Cruise and his... Yeah. Folks, there's a lot... There's a lot of crazy, nutty things out there. It's a... It's a... Some kind of... It, it comes out of Scientology, which is really weird. It's written by Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Supposedly, there's this race of... Beings called Therians, and I don't know. It's, it's really complex what they came up with. You don't need to get muddled by it. But Paul is saying, look, I'm afraid that you're going to get sucked into something that's not true. And that's why i got to defend myself. Not for my sake, but for your sake. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached... Or if you receive a different spirit which you've not received or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul's saying, I'm afraid that somebody's going to come in with a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different spirit, and you're going to be sucked off going down that path. And that's why I need to deal with this thing. Now that's what it says, another Jesus. You realize there's a lot of Jesuses out there. Somebody comes and knocks at your door and saying, we're preaching Jesus. Say, okay, which one do you have? Let's see, there's the Mormon Jesus. There's the Jehovah Witness Jesus. There's the New Age Jesus. There's the secular Jesus. There's supposedly this mythological, historical Jesus that the, all the erudite scholars are trying to find. The quest for the historical Jesus. There's probably a course on that at Oberlin. Trying to demythologize the Bible to find out who is the real guy that walked around. That, of course, he's not a miracle worker. He's certainly not the Son of God. But who is he? So you have to ask Jesus who. Don't let somebody say they believe in Jesus. Then you say, oh, okay, well, we got the same Jesus. That's the problem with the promise keepers. You get people up there preaching another Jesus, and it's like, wait a minute. Well, he's named the same, but you dig under the surface, and it's a different Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And for an organization to boast about the fact that they're attracting the Mormons into it, now there's a real problem, right? 
If Mormons agree with you, you're in deep trouble. Paul is saying, you got another Jesus, you got another another gospel, a different spirit. Folks, Satan wins by deception. That's how that's how he works. He deceives. And 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 and, and that is why it is so important and, and you know, I know we're not supposed to commend ourselves, but you can commend yourself for being in this class to learn what the truth is, so you're not schnookered when somebody comes along and preaches some silliness to you. Folks, we're deceived. The Christian church is stupid. We are. The average Christian doesn't know what they believe. And they couldn't defend it. And we got book after book after book written by people that, that proclaim one thing and another, and there's no discernment. Joel Osteen. Now, there's somebody you got to stay away with. But you know what? He's one of the biggest selling authors. Your best life yet or something like that. What is it? I don't I never. Now or so. I don't know. Whatever. You know. Yeah. Run the other way. Run the other way. Pardon? He's prosperity. Yeah, I'll tell you something, all right? When I read my Bible, there's there's as much negative in it as positive. Uh, watch him. Watch him. What do you got? You got another gospel. You know. Yeah. Now, 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 the very fact, the very, I'm going to go listen to somebody preach, and he, his preaching is characterized by pop psychology. What does that tell you? You don't have to think long on that. Should you go listen to this guy? No, don't. If he's preaching pop psychology, he's not preaching what? This. I, you know, Jesus was not in the pop psychology. His dad was a Baptist. John Henry Olson. Yeah. Well, what about Rick Warren? What's he preaching? I like that guy. I mean, if you compare Olsteen to Rick Warren. It's like, um, Rick Warren, the, the problem is with Rick Warren, I know I'm going to get in trouble here, I know it. Um, Rick Warren, I believe, is a Christian. He knows the Lord, he loves the Lord, but he is pragmatic to the core. He's pragmatic to the core. You know what pragmatic means? If it works, don't sweat it. Um... He's not a theologian at all. Um, he has some questionable theology. Um, he has bought into the notion that somehow if you can come up with the right program, you can reach anybody for Christ, which is silly, right? It's not up to me, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's not. He's not in the Olstein League by any stretch, but yeah. But it says here in verse 5, I better stop there. I'll get myself in more trouble. For I consider not that... Huh, I don't know, Ed Young. 
For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostle. Paul says, I'm not inferior to any of them. I'm an apostle just like the other 11 guys, 12 including Matthias. Even though I'm untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Untrained in speech. What does he mean by untrained in speech? In oratory. I mean, what was the big deal in Greece? Oratory. Yeah, Paul says, you know, I'm, I may not be the greatest public speaker. I have the knowledge, but I may not be the most glib-tongued person you've ever heard. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of Christ to you free of charge? Um, what's this hinting at here? See, in those days, uh, um, a speaker, how do you want to put it? The, a, a speaker was um, valued in terms of how much money he could get. All right? All right. All right. So, so let, let's listen. Yeah. All right. So, Brendan, let's say you're going to go out and you're going to buy some clothes or something. Right. You buy some shoes. And you go down to what is it? Pickway shoe store. All right. I know you wouldn't die. You'd be dead, caught dead doing that. But what quality of shoe are you going to get at Pickway? What you, what you pay for. Now, let's say you go over to Armani, right? What do you expect to pay for a shoe there? Expensive. Right. But what are you paying for? The name. The name. That's what Paul's getting at here. Because the Corinthians have bought into the notion that the value of what is said is proportional to how much the person charges, right? How much did Paul charge? Nothing. Nothing. So therefore, what did they? What were they being led to think that his message was worth? Nothing. Nothing, because he wasn't charging them for it. And Paul is saying here, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted? Because I didn't preach the gospel with cost. I preached it free of charge. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you how to pick out the, you know, the people who one 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 surefire way to pick out a, a true minister of the of the of the word, and that is someone who is not worried about money. He's not interested. You know, if I come to speak, I speak. You know, take free will offering, and that's fine. I I don't charge a fee. A revival going on. You heard from revival. They tell you how much they want each member to pay because that man is coming in. That's not much of a revival. Really? They tell you how much they expect for the members to pay. Why do you go to these weird churches? You learn. Yeah. You learn. Yeah. If you don't go anywhere, you're going to know nothing. Well, I'll pick a good church to go to. Uh, well, the, the whole point. I'm telling you, I know here at church now they get they get things where you know so and so will come in and share their testimony for five thousand bucks. I don't need that. I just I just as soon stay home and watch a Star Trek episode as listen to 
some guy charged 5,000 bucks to give me his testimony. What kind of ministry is that? You think Paul did that? You think Jesus said that? I'll tell you what, I'll preach the Sermon on the Mount today, but let's take a collection and, you know, we're going to charge, you know, free. Free will offering. Now, see, I'll support that. But when you start charging for things, folks, you got a problem there. And Paul is saying one of one of the things that the, that his detractors are saying is, well, of course, Paul, you know, of course, Paul didn't charge you for anything because his message isn't worth anything. Now, we got some guy over here that's going to charge you, you know, 5000 denarii to come in and give you a, you know, have a have a Corinthian crusade. But the mentality is you get what you pay for. And Paul saying, was I wrong to not charge you? And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. Paul saying, even when I was among you and I didn't have resources, I didn't lean on you for anything. In fact, how were my needs supplied? The Macedonians. Now, who are they? They're the poor ones, right? They're the ones that don't have the money. He's saying, I, I didn't want to be burdensome to you. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. Paul's saying, God knows I love you, but you know what? I didn't want to be a burden to anyone. I didn't want you to think I was in it for the money. And see, isn't that the way it is? No matter what you do, somebody's going to whine about it. Now, Paul trotted in and charged for the gospel. People say, see, he's in it for the money. So Paul comes in, he doesn't charge for the gospel. And people say, see, he's not worth listening to because he's not charging you anything. Paul's saying, I preach the gospel free of charge. I was no burden to you. Why? Because I don't love you? No, I love you. God knows I love you. But I didn't want anyone to think that I was in it for the money. And these false teachers that want to come in and try to tell you that I'm not worth listening to because I don't charge for my my gospel, they don't understand. Folks, it's not about money. It really isn't. You want to find the preachers that are preaching the truth? Look at the ones who live a modest lifestyle. Look at the ones who live a... Modest lifestyle. Don't don't follow the ones like Benny Hinn who says, I don't want the gold in heaven, I want it down here. And the response is, well, that's all the gold you're going to get preaching the stuff you preach. Because obviously you're not going to have a home in heaven with that stuff. It's not money. It's not what's here. And Paul's saying, I, and, and see, that's what the, what the detractors were slamming him on. He doesn't speak well, and he doesn't... He, and, and he speaks so badly that he couldn't charge you for it if he could because nobody would pay to listen to him bumble around up there. So his message is not worth anything. And they're trying to set themselves up as being the experts, the well-spoken people. Is he exaggerating that or was that actually true of Paul? Because like from his writing... Compared to... Like, you know, Paul was brilliant. Huh? Well, Paul was brilliant, but compared to the professional orators, compared to them, he wasn't. Mm 
And, and in fact, not only was he, he, did he not try to, he didn't even try to compete on one, in one respect. But the other is, Paul says, I purposely, purposely did not try to compete because I didn't want you to be talked into Christianity out of my oratorical skills. Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the greatest preachers and probably one of the greatest theological minds in, the, in, in Americas, bar none, universally seen as one of the greatest scholars that America's ever produced, preaching on monotone. He read his sermons so that no one would respond through emotion. I just like to have somebody read a sermon in a monotone. But they said that when he preached to sinners in the hangs of an angry God, people were grabbing onto the post to keep from slinking. Slipping into hell, he, he had. They were grabbing onto the post in the church. I mean, folks, that that's that's what Paul's talking about here, and and we need to we need to really get this in our heads. It is not methodology that produces believers. It is the message. It's not your methodology. It's the message of the truth that's going to change a life. And don't fall into the trap of methodology. Well, if we could just get some really good speaker, that, that would do it. Or the right music. Or the right, right ambiance. Or whatever it is. You know? and, and, and again, you want to be the best speaker you can be. You want to be the best preacher. But realize that it's not you. It's the message of the gospel that's going to change a person's life. It, it, it's not... Your slickness. And that's one of the problems when somebody says, you know, give me 15. One guy said, give me 15 minutes with anybody. And I can talk them into, I, I, you know, I can, I can make a Christian out of them. No, you can't. I could do it in five seconds. I'll pull out a 45 point at your head and say, you better pray or you're dead, man. I can get them to pray anything. That doesn't make them a Christian. And Paul's saying, I wasn't going to fall into that trap. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, not charging. So I can prevent anybody else from boasting in that. I'm going to continue because why for these are false apostles. Look how he says them here. These are false apostles. They're not sent from God. They sent themselves. They are deceitful workers. Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. They're, they're not coming from God. They, they sent themselves. And they're passing themselves off as something that they're not. And then it says here, and no wonder, and Paul says, and you shouldn't be surprised about this. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan wanted to preach to someone. How would he show up? 
with a pitchfork, horns, red suit, smell of brimstone around him. He wouldn't do that. He'd show up in the best three-piece suit he could money could buy. Driving the best car you could purchase. Or whatever. He would not show up as a ruffian. He would show up in the best garb possible. Why? So as to deceive. Makes it look good. And it says, and no wonder, and therefore it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves in the ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. I've had occasion of people stop, you know, knocking on my door. You ever heard that? Hi, we're from the Watchtower Society. We're on our way to hell. We want you to go with us. You think they would do that? Think how that's how they were? Or Mormons. Hi, we were with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I said, well, you're wrong on all occasions. You're not the Church of Jesus Christ. You're not Latter-day Saints. Yeah. But, hi, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're going to go burn in hell for eternity. We'd like you to go with us. Is that how they present themselves? No. They do. They believe it. But the point is, how is Satan going to pass his doctrine off? Hi, I'm the devil. I want to damn your soul for eternity. Is that how he's going to pass it off? That doesn't sell very well, does it? Paul is saying, his, Satan is transformed into an angel of light. His ministers are transformed or they metamorphose or they appear to be angels of light. That's how you sell it. Come on, folks. A false teacher is not going to stand up in the church on Sunday morning and say, I'm on my way to hell and I want you all to join me. That's not how it works. You wouldn't, he wouldn't last very long. The way it works is you try to sell yourself as something you're not. They're false apostles. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, Christ says. What's a wolf in a sheep's clothing? Well, what was the garb of a sheep? What do you get from sheep? Wool. The garb of the prophet was wool, a wool coat. Paul is saying they look like prophets, but they aren't. They're wolves down inside. Now, how do you tell the wolves from the real prophets? How do you tell the difference? Yeah, who is Jesus? Which Jesus, which Jesus do you have? I had the Mormons show up at my house, and I went right at the whole thing of Jesus. I said, you've got the wrong Jesus. No, we don't. Yeah, you do. No, you don't. No, we don't. Yeah, you do. No, we don't. Yeah, you do. No, we don't. Yeah, you do. You've got the wrong Jesus. Well, what Jesus do you believe? I said, I believe in Jesus of the Bible. Well, so do we. I said, no, you don't. Don't give me that. Your Jesus is a, is a spirit offspring of Elohim and one of his many wives. Yeah, we believe that. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Well, yeah, it does. Well, no, it doesn't. Well, it says here a Moroni or Morphi or whatever it is. I said, well, see, that's not the Bible, right? 
This is the Bible. See, they, they, they're convinced that their stuff is from the Word of God, but it's not. No, you're suckered into it. A lot of people just suckered in. They're deceived. See, that's what—that's the whole root here. Paul says, "I'm worried that you, that like Eve was deceived, you'll be deceived." And then he's talking about deception. These are deceitful workers, false apostles. Deceitful. It's deceit. Now, do they know they're deceiving? Some of them might. But not all of them. All of them, they truly believe what they believe, but they have been deceived into believing that. And folks, the only antidote to deception is to know the truth. That's it. I mean, you have to know the truth. If you don't, you're sunk. But they don't seem to well, you know, I, there's a Mormon. Yeah, there's a Mormon lady at work I've talked to. Him, and I said, I can't convince you of anything. God's going to have to open your heart. And if he doesn't, I'm wasting my time. Well, they said, you know, man wrote your book, you know. They try to throw all that stuff at you. And they don't know anything what they're talking about. She had, she tried to tell me, the, the, the lady at church or at work tried to tell me, well, you know, I mean... The, you know, the Bible's been changed over the years. I said, well, do you know anything about textual criticism? Huh? What's that? Well, you know about the Greek text? Greek what? What? She didn't know anything about this stuff. You can't. Those of you who took bibliology, you know how well-founded our text is. This has not been altered by man. Well, all our teachings were in there. Somebody took a boat. No, they didn't. They were never in there. That's what I was told by them. Well, I said, where's celestial marriage? Well, it's in the Bible. Well, no, it isn't. Well, you guys took it out. I said, well, where does it say that Jesus was the spirit offspring of Elohim and one of us? Well, that was taken out. But that's what Jesus taught. You know, it's like, sheesh. Folks, look. You got to know the truth. There's no substitute for knowing the truth. And I say again, let, let no one think me a fool, otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishness in this confidence of boasting, seeing that we, that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. Paul says, if you put up with fools, let me pretend to be a fool and try to let you know the truth here. For you put up with, with it. If one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exhausts himself, if one strikes you on the face. Paul's saying, if somebody comes in, and you see some, this is all metaphorical, founded in reality. If someone comes in and punches you in the face and takes your money and deceives you, you put up with it. And I come in preaching the truth, and you don't want to have anything to do with me. You see how deceptful, deceptual? Deceitful sin is? How can anybody in their, in their sane right mind believe that these guy, these, these millionaire preachers on TBN are not taking advantage of the flock and continue to give them money? I don't get it. I, I don't get it. Paul's saying you put up with people who want to come in and enslave you and punch you in the face and rob you and take advantage of you. 
to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I'm also bold, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? Well, I am too. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they the minister of Christ? I, I speak as a fool. I am more a minister of Christ. They say they're a minister of Christ. Well, I'm more of a minister of Christ. Why is that? Well, what have I paid to be a minister of Christ? See, that's one of the problems that we think, well, being a Christian is sort of an easy thing. Right? You know, it's sort of a good thing to do. It doesn't cost you anything. You know, it costs you everything, doesn't it? Paul's saying, I have to boast. I have to, 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 you know, these people come in, they try to make themselves, pass themselves off as Hebrews, as Israelites, as what they are. Well, I am also one of them. And if they want to pass themselves off as minister of Christ, I'm more a minister of Christ. Why is that? I've been in labors more abundant and stripes above measure and prisons more frequently and deaths often. Paul says, if you want to know my ministry, it's because I've been crucified all over the, or not crucified, but persecuted all over the Roman world. Everywhere Paul went, he was dogged by these people who were trying to kill him. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Jewish law says you couldn't hit a man more than 40 times. So just to be, be uh, careful, in, in case they miscounted, they only gave you 39 lashes. Forty stripes. Now you think of that, you think, ah, you know, that's nothing. You know, what would you know getting beat like that? Look, folks, people died getting whipped. They died. It was meant to you would bear scars the rest of your life. Yeah, he was um he was beheaded by the Roman. Um, church history tells us that. Yeah, yeah. He was a Roman citizen, and he was executed under Nero. And execution for a Roman citizen was beheading. You weren't fed to the lions, or you weren't crucified. That was for the barbarians. Beheading was considered a noble form of execution. That's what it was considered that, you know. Well, you know, okay, let's see. We'll feed you to the lions and you'll be eaten alive. Or we can hang you on a cross, put nails in your arms, and let you hang there for four days till you die. Or we can behead you. What would you like to do? Because it was an honor to be a Roman citizen. And, and it was an instant death as opposed to a humiliating death. That that's, was their view. You understand that's how the that's how the French Revolution, where the guillotine came from. The idea of the guillotine was an instant merciful death. I mean, prior to that, I got a macabre side of me. I've studied capital punishment through the years, and part of before that, you know, it was it, you know the idea of putting someone to death of execution. It was the job of the executioner to make it painful and humiliating for the person. That was the job of it. It was not the sanitized thing you see today. It was meant to be humiliating. It was meant to be painful. Um, my fifth great-grandfather was murdered. I, I just found this out. He was murdered. On the way back from Coventry, some guys jumped and murdered him. And they caught the guys and they hung him. 
in those days, you know, we think of hanging like, you know, the Wild West, you know, hang them high. Clint well, that's not the way it worked back then. The way it worked back then is they put a rope around you and take the ladder out and you dangle there and, and suffocate, really. It, it would take up to 15, 20 minutes to die. Very painfully, very slowly. Um, they hung these three guys. And not only did they hang them, but then there was the, the, the court ordered that they be taken down and uh, their bodies were prepared and they were put in a, like a chain metal cage hung back up on the gibbet where they were hung and they stayed there for 45 years. You could, you could walk, yeah, it's a true story. I'm not making this up. You could walk in the, you could walk into Owsley. This is a little town outside of Coventry. And on the way you see Gibbet Hill and there's these three skeletons in these chains hanging there that uh, 45 years hung up there for murdering someone. It was meant to be painful. It was meant to hurt. They would break you on the wheel. That's what they would do is they would take a wheel and they would break your bones so literally they could wrap you around this wheel. And then once you were wrapped around the wheel, the execution would take a mallet and crush your chest so as to kill you. But meanwhile, you know, they would break each of your, your arm and your leg bones so they could sort of like wrap you around this wheel backwards. It's called breaking on the wheel. It was some pretty gross stuff back then. Drawing and quartering was bad. Drawing and quartering, they would they would hang you until you were almost dead. You weren't quite dead. You were, you were hung, and then just before you die, they would cut you down and and revive you. All right. They would stretch you out, and someone would take a knife and cut you open and pull your intestines out while you were still alive. And while you're sitting there dying, they would be cutting your innards out, throwing them in the fire until you finally died, at which point they would cut your head off and cut your body up and send you your four pieces or whatever, hang them on the city wall. It was it was a pretty gruesome way to die. This we're saying this right before we're going to Applebee's, right? To eat. You know. But but I don't really mean to get down that rabbit trail, but beheading was considered a merciful death quick and easy death as opposed to the others and Paul paid that price and Paul's saying here I got I got beaten five times three times I was beaten with rods which is not it, it would not uh, sting the flesh but it would it would break it could break bones I was stoned once that's not with alcohol that's with rocks and the way they stoned you in those days they dropped these rocks on you to crush the life out of you that's how it, it was stoning. It was not taking little rocks and throwing them at you. It was actually big things they would drop on you. Yeah. So what did they do? Tie you down? No, they push you off a cliff or a, or a place and you'd be stunned and then you'd drop these rocks on you till you're dead. Yeah. They would take a big rock and drop it on your head and crush it and kill you. That was a coup de gras to make sure you're dead. The idea of stoning is I don't have to actually touch you to kill you. He said I was shipwrecked three times. Night and a day I've been out in the middle of the ocean. In journeys often in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of Gentiles, perils in the city, in the wilderness. Perils of Pauline. That was a funny 
and seeing perils. Paul says, everywhere I went, my Paul said, I lived my entire life in constant peril to preach Christ. Constant peril. No matter where I was, somebody was out to get me. Somebody was out to get me. In weariness and toil, sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. Paul says, I lived cold, I lived naked, not bare naked, but he didn't have enough clothes to wear. He was always hungry, always thirsty, always deprived. For what? For the gospel. So when these silver and these slick tongued boys come in and they're coming in in their three piece polyester robes and they're talking about how how great they are and how rude and crude Paul is because, you know, I come in and I'm a little scruffy and I've been over because I got beaten with rods three times and all that. He says, uh, who's the one that's the minister of Christ here? But don't you think that some of these um, big shot guys, they see money and this is, they just get into ministry because they know there's money in it? Yeah, I think some of them do. Some of them do. And they're going to be that crowd to say, well, Lord, you know, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and do all this stuff? And Christ said, what's he going to say? I'm going to say, I don't know who you guys are. Sons of Sceva, they had a good gig going, didn't they? Right? Cast out demons. And Paul comes along and says, wow, that's, that's a new magical. That's better than our abracadabra. You know, we'll, we'll get them out in the name of Jesus. And. Of course, the demons say, well, we know who Jesus are. We know who Paul is, but who are you guys? And they beat them up and ripped their clothes off and they ran out of the house naked. Paul says, besides the other things which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Not only am I in peril from all these other things, but I'm constantly worried about the churches. Paul says, I care for you people. Who is weak? And I'm not weak who's made to stumble and I do not stumble, burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm not going to boast in how much money I have, how well things are going with me, how, how wide my ministry. I'm going to boast in the scars I have for Jesus. That's what I'm going to boast in. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Paul says, my boast is in the Lord. In fact, he says in Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of Damascus. Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hand. Remember when Paul was let down out of the basket, out of the window? Paul says, I've lived, Paul says, I have lived my entire life on the run. And the ministry, and here, here's the other thing. At its root, let's stop and think about this a minute. At its root, the gospel is a scandalous message. You realize that. Now, we live in an age where, you know, it's this, it's this whole political correctness baloney that we got to deal with and we dare not assault the 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 um, emotional health and self-esteem of anyone and now we've got to go up and tell them you know 
you're a sinner, you're damned, you're on the way to hell, there's nothing you can do about it. And unless you're willing to admit your sin, you can't be saved. That's a scandalous message to people that don't want to hear any bad news. Keep it positive. Let's not say anything negative. Let's not use the sin word. Don't use the S word. You might get me people mad. So what is homosexuality? Well, that's an alternate lifestyle. What's pornography? Well, that's addiction. We redefine all the terms. We, we preach a scandal. Paul says the message of the cross is a scandalous message because it tells you as a human being how rotten you are to the core and there's nothing you can do about it and your only hope is to throw yourself on the mercy of God. It strikes at your pride. It deals a death blow to your pride. What do you have to boast of? Nothing. And Paul said, I've spent my entire life on the run in a scandalous message. Let's, you want to compare the credentials. When these false teachers tried in the town, what price have they paid? See, you know, it's easy to be popular, right? Just find out what people want to hear and tell them. How do you, why do you think the TBN guys are so popular? Because they're telling people the truth or they're telling people what people want to hear. That's not a trick question. They scratch their ears, right? Tickle their ears. You tell them what you want to hear. How do you think Robert Schuller started the Crystal Cathedral? He found out what people wanted to hear and told them what they wanted to hear. And they flocked to him. Now you stand up and say, you know, God says blah, blah, blah. Everybody runs for cover. You don't have a big church. Nobody wants to hear that kind of stuff. And that's what the Corinthian detractors were saying about Paul. Paul's saying it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations. Okay, let's 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 get rid of the boasting business. Let's talk about visions and revelations. Now there's a big one, right? If you if you're if you run in the some of the charismatic circles, the big thing is God talking to you. Remember John MacArthur was talking about he's good friends with Jack Hayford, Church on the Way, Los Angeles. He said he and Jack were having lunch and Jack Hayford said, yeah, Jesus came in and talked to me this morning while I was shaving. And John says, you mean he really came in and talked? Yeah, he really came in and talked to me. John said, I dropped my taco. And he said, well, did you keep shaving? <laughs> you know. Look, folks, silliness. Has God showed up to anybody? No, God doesn't visibly show up to us. Does he speak to us? Of course he does through his word. Well, Paul says, you want to talk about visions and revelations? Okay, let's see. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, now almost universally people say this is referring, Paul's referring to himself. Paul says, I knew a guy 14 years ago. I don't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. What's the third heaven? The abode of God. Paul had an out-of-body experience. He was caught up to the third heaven. Now, today when you're caught up to the third heaven, people write books about it. 
In fact, you can go in our bookstore and find a book written by some guy that had a tour of heaven. Now, I'll tell you what. I don't know what he saw, but he was not given a tour of heaven. Oh, there's another one in there about a guy who got a tour of hell, too. So it goes both ways. All right. Might quite possibly that's what it is. Quite possibly. I think you can make a strong case that it's Paul. Paul's talking about this because he's saying, let's talk about visions and revelation. And he talks about a man in the Lord who had a caught up to the third heaven. Now, it wouldn't make any sense for him to bring that up. It wasn't him, right? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. He's comparing his revelations and visions to someone else's or to the people who say they have visions and revelations. Paul said, I was caught up to the third heaven. I got to see the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, do not know, God knows. I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul did not write a book of his experience. One of the charismatic guys, and I, don't, I forget which one, I don't know his name, he had a tour of heaven. He said Jesus Christ gave him a personal tour of heaven. And one of his most memorable moments is with Jesus took him out wading in the river of life. And partway out, Jesus dunked him in the river of life. They were playing in the river of life with Jesus. And he says he keeps his tie. And whenever he wants to remember his friends, he smells his tie because it's good. He's still got the smell of heaven on it. Mm -hmm. Then he said one of the most interesting things he saw was a great storehouse in heaven. They had this great warehouse, mammoth warehouse. And I walked in there and he looked along and they had all these, these body parts hanging on the wall. He said, I saw ears and arms and legs and all kinds of stuff. And he said, sort of weird. And he said, Jesus said, yeah, that's all the spare parts I have. And people just had the faith to believe they would get their spare eyeball, you know, or whatever it is they needed. Now, look, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not making this up. Yeah, there's there's some rugs up there. You need some hair. You know, if you just believed you could grow a full head of hair. You know, I could do that. You know, um, I forget the guy's name. Um, I think John talks about it in his Charismatic Chaos book. And it's, it's an actual book somebody wrote. I'm not making it up. Somebody wrote this. Um, now, look, folks, Paul's saying, you know, I went to heaven. He says, my boast is not in my vision. Who, who does Paul's, if Paul's vision here, who did that really benefit? Himself. And by the way, there are these guys that go around for 5,000 bucks. They'll come and tell you about their experience in heaven, too. But apart from the proofs, what about the near death experience? Now, there was a book out there mm -hmm. by a Baptist preacher, 20 minutes in heaven. He was... Mm -hmm. He was virtually, he was pronounced dead at a car. Yeah. And all he said in, in his book, it described a, a tremendous peace, uh, vivid colors, and, a, and just a sense of, 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 of wholeness. But then he, he came yeah. back. And he didn't exaggerate. Yeah. Now, what did he see? Was he, was he actually gay? If, if someone actually goes to heaven or actually goes to hell, they don't come back. 
I mean, if you're dead, dead, you don't come back. Now, could there be, I mean, we are a spirit being, right? Is it possible that there are these near-death experience things where where we, we can sense and see something? I, probably. I read that book, and I don't think he claims to you know. actually go into heaven. He, said, he no. said that he's actually outside the gates of heaven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there we go. Yeah. He's just like 40 Mm-hmm. But if you're dead, dead, you don't come back. How about Lazarus? You know, I mean, if anybody could have made a mint, <laughs> Lazarus could have talked about his three days in paradise, right? Yeah. I mean, not not that Lazarus, but the Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, right? Mm-mm. Because this, and, and Peter even hits this in, in, in Second Peter, or first Pe- Second Peter, he says, you know, I heard God on the holy mount. I saw the risen Lord. But I have something better than that. I have the sure word of prophecy, which is the word of God. That's better than any vision or dream you can have. And Paul's saying, I had a vision. I was caught up in the paradise. And probably he was. Can you have valid near-death experiences or something? Obviously, Paul did. Now, again, Paul's saying, you know, it's really confusing. I don't know whether I was really there or not. I, you know, sort of fuzzy to me, right? But Paul says, I saw things that I couldn't, I can't, I can't express. Of such a one, I will boast, yet of myself, I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Paul says, I'd rather boast of my infirmities than in all the visions and all the dreams and all the revelations that you can have. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul says, I purposely make myself sound and look dumb so that nobody is drawn into these visions and dreams and, and think of me as being something I'm not. Paul says, I don't want anybody to think of me as being something I am not. So I purposely tone it down. I purposely do that. It's totally opposite what you see today. Totally opposite. You got you got these guys bragging about Jesus this and you know uh, Ken Hagen says yeah Jesus shows up and gives me my sermon outlines and on and on and on it goes and you know it, it's it's these people boast in themselves and talking to them you think if they didn't weren't around the whole kingdom of God would come crashing down in pieces. God doesn't need any one of us. It's amazing. God uses anybody. Much less making yourself out to be something you're not. Paul says, I purposely do the best I can to get myself out of the way so no one can pin the success of my ministry on my abilities. Because it's really not my abilities. God gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. And Paul says, and just to make sure, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. What's that? Well, I'll tell you, people have come up with all kinds of things on this. He had a disease. He had this. He had that. Um, bad eyesight. Um, all kinds of stuff. Um 
probably the best view on that. A messenger of Satan, usually that always refers to a demon or refers to a person. And I think it's a sent one. Paul says, I got a messenger, an angel from Satan to buffet me. Just so I wouldn't boast, God sent something along to keep me humble. I think that's what he's talking about. The ringleader is the messenger of Satan to buffet me. They're there to keep me humble, to keep me from boasting, to keep me from thinking of myself as something, to keep me from boasting in my revelations. Because Paul says, now look, you line up all the people that have ever lived in Christianity, who's at the head of the line when it comes to personal revelation from God? Paul. Who's at the head of the line when it comes to a grasp of theology and doctrine? Paul. He wrote most of it. We're trying to figure out what he wrote. Actually, he didn't write it. The Spirit did. But he's the head of the line. And Paul said, just so I don't get to start feeling that, you know, I'm some great and wonderful special thing, God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. Yep. Yeah. And we got to, you know, folks, what will kill your... The thing that will kill your ministry dead is pride. And you gotta kill it. And sometimes and we can't do that, can we, as human beings? And Paul's saying God sent a messenger of Satan along to buffet me. The word buffet there is interesting, it means to beat with the fist. And why is that? So that I would not be exalted above measure. To keep me humble. And to keep me Depending on God. Because when we are buffeted, we are dependent on God, aren't we? And Paul says that's where the power of the ministry comes from. Not my brains, not my abilities, not my revelations, not my visions and dreams, and not my glib tongue. It comes from a power of the Word of God. That's where the power comes from. And just to make sure that I would not be boasting about this thing, God sent along a messenger of Satan to beat me and to keep me humble. And in fact, I pleaded three times that God would take it away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. And see, folks, that is the paradox of the Christian life. How do you win? You lose. How do you gain everything? You give everything up. How do you find yourself? You lose yourself. That's the paradox of the Christian life. And that is why the message of the gospel is a scandal on to the world. They've dug up a lot of people talking about Christianity, writing about it, ancient Romans. And one of them said, look, at you know, Christ was a big loser. I mean, good night. The guy got crucified. Talk about losing. And in and, and the Roman mind and the Greek mind, they could not comprehend how someone could give their life and yet win it all. They didn't get that. And Paul is saying, 
what makes my ministry, whatever it is, powerful is not me. It's the power of Christ in me. And the only way the power of Christ in me can be seen is if I am nothing. Remember the clay pot? And the more, the more, you know, in your ministry, the more you get in the way, the less God can do. You got to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit of God do the work. And Paul said, God told me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength will be made perfect, complete, seen in your weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. How do you win it all? You lose it all. How do you gain eternal life? You give up your own. How did Christ win it all? He gave all of it away. That's the way it works. But that's not the way the world thinks, right? The world thinks power, accept, take, you know, dominate. Look out for number one. That's how you win. You win by looking out for number one. That's not the way you win. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How, do, how You want the power of Christ to be seen in you, then you got to boast in your infirmities. Right? I mean, think about it. You know, Paul is saying, people can look at me or they can look at Christ. <laughs> And the only way, and the way they make Christ look really good is they can't really be looking at me. I got to get out of the way. I got to give it up. And then I win. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.